welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. My name is Beth Shank, nurse scientist and healthcare sustainability leader in Missoula, Montana. On the podcast, I interview nurses working at the intersection of health and environment. Today's podcast is a fascinating conversation with Dr. Rachel Walker, associate professor in nursing at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, inventor, author, speaker, and more. We met at the American Academy of Nursing Conference in the fall of 2019, and I've been excited to speak with Rachel ever since. We discuss nursing, innovation, invention, climate change, and more. Rachel is a visionary leader who brings much to our profession. Please enjoy. Rachel Walker, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I've been looking forward to talking with you ever since we met last fall in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Good. Well, start off, if you would, and just tell us a bit about yourself and your nursing background, what you're what you are up to and how you got there in a brief moment or two. Sure. So... Yeah, so I, I sometimes joke that I'm the accidental professor um, because I didn't set out to be a professor, and I actually never originally set out to be a nurse, but now I'm both. Uh, so I'm an associate professor and the PhD program director here at the University of Massachusetts Amherst up in Western Mass. I've been here about six years. I also help to direct a multidisciplinary translational tech center called the Center for Health and Human Performance. And I also serve as the Invention Ambassador for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So a lot of my work these days involves invention, um, technology, often teams composed of, of always members of the community, but also a lot of other types of scientists and technologists and um, even philosophers and poets sometimes. And we're mostly focused on trying to find ways to support health as folks would define it for themselves. And my, my introduction to nursing was actually um, largely through the Peace Corps. Um, originally, I went to, to college down at the University of Virginia. I was not in the nursing school. I graduated and I moved uh, across the ocean to Mali, West Africa, where I was stationed with um, a bunch of midwives and a nurse who ran a rural health clinic there, kind of close to the edge of the Sahara. And it was, it was really watching them um, deliver services in a space without electricity. There was no running water, um, but there were, there were these midwives who had been trained largely by other midwives who'd come before them, and they were just so present and they were so aware of what was going on in the community. And they were able to use you know, just their eyes and their ears and their hands to conduct these expert assessments and to you know, deliver, deliver babies, you know, deliver um, wound care, whatever it was that was needed. And they were, they were really the, the front and, and sort of only <laughs> line of um, care there. And, and I was just so impressed by that. And and how they did that, and I wanted to learn how to do that too. So that's how I ultimately ended up enrolling in nursing school, and um, eventually finding myself here at UMass. Wow, that's super interesting. It's uh, and I recognize this, as that to a certain extent. My entry into nursing was also through the nurses, uh, being so impressed with nurses. Yeah, I mean, I mean that nurses do so much, and 
as you know, we're, we're now in 2020, which is the international year of a nurse and midwife. And nurses and midwives compose over 50% of the global health workforce. But I think often they're... Um, they're they're sort of unsung, <laughs> and they're they're everywhere. And uh, as I said, they were the only ones um, who were formally there as care providers in this uh, 14 village uh, region of um, sort of the rural desert where I was in Mali. And um, and that had been true clearly for a very long time. And um, and they were the experts. Well, that's really interesting, Rachel, and um, informative, of course, to your, your later work. So tell us a little bit more. You have such an interesting resume. And be- before we get to environmental uh, topics, I'd really like to explore a little bit more about your approach to inventions and innovation. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I I realize now looking back on the last, uh, particularly the last several years since I've been at UMass, but but even leading up to then, that uh, we've been engaged in this work for a really long time, as have so many nurses who've come before us. Um, So we we take what we like to think is an equity-centered and community-directed approach to invention, which is to say, rather than simply focusing on you know, can we build this technology or, you know, in the later stages of development, okay, now that we've got this this gadget or this tool, you know, how are we going to get folks involved in helping us to implement this? Uh, we, we really t- try to take a step back and ask, you know, do we even understand the innovation challenges we should be designing for in the first place? And who, you know, else should be at this table here with us helping us figure that out? Um, and, and this is where I think nurses are are really wonderfully intuitive innovators because our work, uh, whether that's at the bedside or you know in the community or even in the classroom, it's so close. Um, it's so proximal to the spaces often in need of innovation, but but more importantly too to the community and their voices. Um, and so you know we we begin with this question, um, whomever it is we're working with, of what is health look like for you, you where you are right now, you know, right at this moment. Um, Because so often what health looks like for a person is a very different answer from the answer to the question, how healthy are you, which is more the biomedical approach. Um, Because that latter question, how healthy are you, you know, it tends to put you on some kind of scale, a set of metrics often designed by someone else. It's often more focused on digits and numbers rather than voice. It's often more focused on pathophysiology than on wellness or wholeness or function. Um, so so I've, I've really come to love this question, what does health look like for you? And, and then you're supposed to listen <laughs> and believe what people tell you, even if it's not something that maybe falls high on what might be considered the priority list for health innovation or for the NIH strategic plan or whatever else um, might be driving a lot of the innovation challenges these days. And because I'm an oncology nurse, um, my first job out of nursing school as a nurse formally was on uh, the bone marrow transplant unit at Johns Hopkins. So it was actually the the complete opposite in some ways of the space I'd come from in Mali. It was super high tech. It was super fast paced. It was, you know, folks often, you know, were along with them kind of walking this cutting edge of, of um 
sort of the balance of, of their systems and their therapies um, and often delivering first in, in human quote unquote trials of new therapies. So, but it was a great place to learn that side of nursing on the, the acute care hospital side. And what I noticed there is, is um, people were working really hard to be well in a space where often there was a lot of uncertainty. There were some very, frankly, toxic, you know, treatments that were being delivered in the service of, of supporting life. And they were working really hard and they were in no way passive in this, this, journey. And then when they finished their, their therapy or whatever unfolded, oftentimes if they were going back to their homes in the community, that was continuing. So there was all this labor people were doing that wasn't really accounted for in the medical record and um, that we didn't necessarily do a great job of supporting, uh, particularly once folks um, you know, were discharged from the hospital setting. Um, so that led me to become a patient navigator and to focus my dissertation research on better understanding what I called the work of cancer survivorship um, and, and following a, um, a collection of individuals who'd been diagnosed with cancer and their support people, uh, their family members, friends, uh, adult children, as they navigated from the time of diagnosis through their treatment and then often up to a year or more out from treatment. And um, at the time, I was looking mostly at people who were in a very rural part of Virginia, uh, an hour or more from their local cancer center. Um, so then, you know, moving from the inpatient hospital space to delivering navigation support to persons who are now back at home or back in their community trying to make things work out there, um, that was a, a time of gaining a lot of insights into um, the, the environment uh, that the persons who we were supporting were living in and how much of a role that environment played in their health and ability to do the, the things they wanted to be able to do. And so now our innovation projects, once we get an answer from an individual of what does health look like for you, what we're trying to figure out is not how to fix that person, not how to tweak something about them to make this better, but, but usually what is the environment or environments they're living in? And what is it about those environments that needs to be modified or improved to create a better fit between that person right where they are and their environment. Because we all live on a spectrum of capability and disability that, that fluctuates in relation to our environments, every single one of us, um, whatever intrinsically characteristics there, there are about ourselves. And so um, I think when we, we zoom out from, um, again, the biomedical focus on the individual and trying to fix the individual, and we look at the environment and then we try to optimize that for a person, whatever space they're in, it's not only more sustainable in the long run, but oftentimes now we're hitting at the, the, the bigger picture solutions of um, what's going to make health better, not just for that person, but hopefully for a lot of other people too. That sounds just terrific. And that was really well, well said um, and takes, takes us back to um, roots of nursing in terms of um, meeting people where they are, 
helping people thrive with whatever circumstance there is uh, that they are in. Um, uh, I was just interviewing Billy Rosa last week and, and the concept of palliative, uh, a palliative pr- approach through whatever condition uh, is, comes to mind. So, yeah. yeah. So, Go ahead. Oh, I was just, just to jump in real briefly, because I realized I just, I just talked in a lot of terms that are still somewhat abstract and I didn't give any real concrete examples. So just to give a few examples of mm-hmm. where those types of processes have taken us, um, you know, one of the things that we were uh, looking at was um, chemotherapy leaving the body. Um, you know, right now, an overwhelming majority of folks who are prescribed chemotherapy, they're, they're now taking oral chemotherapies at home. And uh, one of the things about this is there's, there's not a lot of great data uh, around how all of those drugs exit the body, um, not just in, in terms of urine or, or sort of blood levels, which they have to get for FDA approval, but in, in terms of other body fluids too, semen, vaginal fluid, breast milk, et cetera. And, and so there's a lot of um, kind of myth and um, making it up as we go along around recommendations for activity when someone is on one of these oral chemotherapies, even if it's for a non-cancer purpose, like a, some kind of chronic, chronic autoimmune condition. And so what happens sometimes is persons are very worried about exposing loved ones to toxic byproducts of these drugs as they exit their systems. And so they'll be told, you know, just to abstain from certain activities that are perhaps some of the most meaningful and important things for them, like caring for small children, sharing a bed or a bathroom, or physical intimacy with their partner. So um, whether or not the, the chemistry behind that is, is super well justified, the fear is real. Um, so one of the things we started developing was um, a microfluidics project with my colleague, Dr. Sarah Perry, who's a chemical engineer. And um, it's, it's a lot like a pregnancy test. It's a strip of paper, and you can you know, dip it into a fluid. And what it'll show you is whether or not certain drugs or, or toxic metabolites are there in that fluid. And um, the current, I think we're on the fourth generation prototype right now, is designed to be read by a smartphone camera attachment. So the idea is something that you could use at home and actually know when these drugs have fully exited the system or when they're present in other spaces, you know, again, like like the, the toilet bowl. And um, it's not a, a thing that typically you'd see on a priority list for drug companies or biotech. Um, but what it's doing is giving us a way to give that person information, which is, again, part of their environment. Um, so even if it's just a matter of reassurance, you know, okay, like you're, you're okay. <laughs> like, you know, you can, you can be intimate with your partner again. You can, um, you know, re-engage with your loved ones. Um, and also to draw attention to just the tremendous degree of um, toxic, toxic um, elements of the environment that are introduced through some of our drug regimens that go straight through a person's body and back out into the water system or wherever um, those drugs are being disposed of. We, we know precious little about chemotherapy contamination at home and in other spaces outside of the hospital. And oncology nurses like myself in longitudinal studies have been shown to be at higher risk for developing some 
um, cancers ourselves, in part, perhaps, one of the working hypotheses is because regularly the drugs we're working with are aerosolized you know, through flushing toilets and through other environmental exposures, and we're exposed to them chronically over the course of our work. Um, but there's not a lot of financial incentive for mitigating that uh, source of environmental contamination because all of the incentives in the business world are around um, you know, distributing the drugs, selling the drugs. And of course, we all want folks to, um, you know, recover from their cancer or manage their cancer and feel better. Um, so, so this is one way I think this innovation process has led down an unexpected path, um, but one we hope might ultimately provide us with more tools to um, better understand not only how to take care of the person, um, but to also uh, take better care of the environment in which they're living. That's a great, great example and a great story. And it also links it back to taking care of nurses. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the problem of, of uh, pharmaceutical exposures in our natural environment, because um, uh, not only are chemotherapeutic agents a, something that's found, you know, to some degree, but also NSAIDs, uh, antidepressants, hormonal therapy, some antibiotics. There's a few common classes that are found almost ubiquitously, even in, I live in Montana, even in the mm -hmm. high lakes in Montana. And the thought mm -hmm. is that they're not aerosolized. And so that a lot of that transportation up to high lakes is through our animals and humans, through our own mm. bodies. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's quite a Pandora's box once released and very hard to get back into the bottle. But by drawing attention to it in this way, I think is really, uh, uh, really helpful. And I could see all sorts of applications for the technology you're describing, because a whole lot of people are concerned about toxic exposures in their homes. And if that could develop into, you know, uh, a way for people to monitor closely, like in uh, mm -hmm. babies' rooms, nurseries, and whatnot, especially mm -hmm. with new new equipment that's off-gassing uh, known known toxic chemicals. So anyway, fabulous work. Yeah, yeah. And actually, a lot of my colleagues here who are not in nursing but who've become our collaborators are chemical engineers, chemists, water engineers who are building all kinds of um, uh, low-energy um, water-sensing type of devices. Um, UMass has a reputation in terms of uh, environmental health and um, water uh, research involving, you know, water, um, and sustainability. So they're not just looking at, you know, chemo, they're, they're looking at a bunch of other contaminants as well. And, um, what are ways that, uh, again, you know, in communities, even down to the individual level can, um, have access to tools to, um, be more aware of the, the quality of, of the water where they are and, and when something starts to go awry. That's great. That sounds really, really fascinating. And, and um, there's endless work, isn't there? <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, so um, the way I got, I met you was really after your talk, which I missed at the American Academy of Nursing, because I was, had to do something else right then, but I heard raves, rave reviews about it. So I wanted to follow up a little bit about that and particularly get into some of the, your thinking right now or these days about our planetary environmental issues, including climate change, if that's not too lurch, too much of a lurch. Sure. No. Um, I, yes, I was, I was very happy to see you down in DC as well. And that, that couple of days feels like a whirlwind now. Um, 
So I'm sure I missed a lot as well. Um, and, and I'll actually take, I'll, I'll take one step before I, I yeah. think if it was the talk at the Academy about media partnerships, um, sort of a different topic, mm-hmm. uh, the day before that, um, I had been part of a, a plenary panel at the CANS, the Council for the Advancement of Nursing mm-hmm. Science, uh, meeting, which this year the theme was on sensors and sensor applications in nursing and nursing research. And so our panel kicked off that discussion uh, mostly around theory to guide sensor research. And and the, the message that was just so important to, to me personally to deliver at that plenary and and one of the reasons I appreciated being invited to go in the first place was, you know, in my opinion, technology is just a tool. It's just a tool. Um, and it, and it should never supplant our attention to, um, the, the voices and, uh, lived experiences of the people we serve. And what I see in the sensor world, I spend a lot of time with now, even around water sensing, as we were just talking about, is um, there's there's a, a tendency sometimes when a new gadget or tool comes online or with some of the applications we're seeing right now of um, so-called artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, algorithms that can crunch a bunch of numbers and give you an answer, is um, there, there's a tendency to center the technology <laughs> and, and in the process of that, um, sometimes lose the human story and perhaps forget or completely miss some of the human impacts, which may, in fact, um, not all be positive. Sometimes they can be um, incredibly harmful. And that was part of the theme I shared uh, later at the Academy, too, in our media panel. I am um, just just learning, constantly learning and unlearning. And I think um, platforms, including Twitter, to be honest, um, have been incredibly helpful to me in that way, because um, Twitter is one of those spaces that allows you to tune in to the perspectives and conversations of folks you might otherwise never have um, a way to meet or engage with directly in the real world, and to do it in a way that doesn't necessarily place more burden on them Mm -hmm. to have to explain things to you, um, but allows you to see sort of what... um, what those perspectives are. And in the last year and a half, particularly, I feel like one of the greatest places of learning for me has been um, following folks on Twitter, um, including folks down in Puerto Rico, um, folks who belong to communities that I really um, cannot claim to be a part of myself. Um, and, and seeing, you know, as they react to news and stories and, and even things myself and other colleagues put out there, um, you know, trying to, to really listen to that, um, because oftentimes it opens up for me a world of, of knowledge I, um, I didn't even know I was missing. Well, it sounds like the, you know, the um, invitation to yourself, to oneself to have insight and to be questioning, to say, am I listening? Am I aware? What what am I missing? That seems like a, a really important first step. And I, I like what you're saying about applying that to Twitter <laughs> because Twitter is in a certain amount, in a certain way is kind of like a, a, a conversation eavesdropper. Is it, is it not? I don't use Twitter honestly very much, but it's people are just sharing themselves in their, in their daily life, in their circumstances, open to whatever train or trail of thought that people are following. 
uh, I can see that there'd be some interesting cultural uh, learning there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, there have been a bunch of nurses who've written things about Twitter and social media lately, and I think it was maybe Dr. Mona Chattel um, and Dr. Monica McLemore, and, and I may be missing a few others who wrote a piece about Twitter as, as um, you know, one of the, the world's largest anthropological databases, mm-hmm. you know, a place where you could naturally query, you know, on a key term or a hashtag or you know, a topic of interest and, and immediately get, you know, all of this information. And granted, there's still an algorithm there that's not transparent, that's driving to some extent what you're exposed to and how those connections are formed. But, um, you know, even yesterday night, I was um, in the line to pick up my kids at their school, and it was um, a few hours away from a, a deadline for um, the nursing theory conference that's coming up in March. And um, I simply had not been able to generate anything um, for this this conference, and and I was feeling bad. And and it occurred to me, you know, it would be interesting to engage in a kind of experiment right now online in co-creation of a submission for this conference. And so I, I posted a tweet to the effect of, you know, okay, like let's try something. Um, let's let's try to write an abstract collaboratively whoever wants to chime in can chime in and let's just see what happens so that was at 3 55 p.m yesterday it's now about um 18 hours since that time and i i checked the tweet and it had been um i think there had been nearly 10,000 impressions across all of twitter and there had been um over 200 what they call engagements with it, which is to say somebody like opened it up or added their two cents. And uh, as of this morning, there were approximately 18 co-authors of this yeah. now fairly complete abstract. Um, the, the working title is, I wrote this on my phone, uh, <laughs> knowledge co-creation in the era of Twitter. Um, and, and there are nurses from all over the place. And um, actually, it's also been translated into French, Spanish and Arabic. Wow. <laughs> um, and this is in 18 hours with like a single tweet that I threw up um, just at the end of the day as a kind of um, thought experiment in what these platforms might offer. Um, so. So, yeah, I, I think it's a tool that not everyone is equally um, familiar with or necessarily wants or needs to be on, um, but it's one I've found to be very helpful. And two, you know, uh, around your planetary health um, theme with this podcast, you know, I think so much, um, so much of, of what we see happening in terms of ennui or lack of collective will to really uh, commit to planetary health is a result of, of privilege that isolates many of us from what might be considered the most direct impacts uh, at least at the moment of of some of what is unfolding in terms of um, you know climate change and and devastating effects of that. And um, Twitter is another place where you actually see in real time those effects, you know where where even a couple days ago, um, just just in connecting with colleagues over in Australia, you know who are fighting the fires there and worried about their loved ones and families. And again, my my uh, colleagues in Puerto Rico, you know, who just experienced an earthquake and are now having to sort of rebuild once again, um, you know, in, in a space that's already 
uh, really uh, hurting from past <laughs> disasters, um, but but still, you know, in- incredibly resourceful. All of these folks, you know, you're seeing their voices, their their lived experiences in real time, and it's harder to look away, I think, mm-hmm. than when you're sitting kind of isolated in your own world and only consuming the media you choose to consume and, mm-hmm. and can feel a little bit detached and distant from the, the present reality. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, great, re- great reminder. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to get more involved with Twitter. I'm going to follow you, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do not need to follow me. But there are some amazing folks I would certainly recommend. And um, and, and the, a beautiful thing about it, too, is it offers the option for translation. Um, so, you know, because many of my students come from parts of the world where even the script is not something I necessarily um, am, am able to read in, like um, Arabic, you know, they'll, they'll be engaging with their colleagues in Arabic on Twitter. I can translate those tweets immediately cool. um, with an option there. And I think that, too, it's an opportunity for dialogue mm-hmm. um, or at least a kind of, um, you know, taking in information and, and maybe a little bit of consciousness raising that um, simply is, is not possible for me in, in so many other spaces. Mm-hmm. Cool. Hey, I wanted to, if we could, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, the brief um, paper that I was involved with you on in terms of really asking the uh, cancer research priorities to include climate change. You know, your your statement was really strong, really clear. I, I feel uh, again and again like science, um, I guess, organizational science, corporate science, government science isn't keeping up with these crushing realities that are upon us. And I wondered if you could describe that and how you uh, think about that. Oh, absolutely. And, and thank you again for, um, you know, adding your voice to that, that piece. So, so yes, I'm an oncology nurse. I'm a, a very long time member of the oncology nursing society, which is, you know, a huge, probably, I, I think it's the largest cancer nursing organization in the world, massive multi-million dollar organization that does a lot of research and, and funds a lot of its own research too. And every five years or so they put out a new nursing research agenda for oncology nursing. And uh, so they just published the latest one. And I was actually interviewed as part of the consensus study for the generation of that set of research priorities. And I I find the the result of that planning process um, was one where it was not surprising to me, you know, a lot of the focus in the the recently published strategic plan is is around areas that oncology nursing has has been a leader in. you know, whether that's palliative care and symptom science, some of the emergent cancer therapies, um, and, and um, understanding better you know, some of the health inequities, too, that exist uh, across that space. But one of the things I didn't see in the strategic plan was anything about climate change or planetary health or, or frankly, really environmental health of any kind, which was rather stunning to me just given the conversation we had earlier around um, both the potential impacts of some of the the therapies and and drugs we work with on the environment, but also the fact that of all the groups out there who um, at various stages of of cancer therapy or due to 
factors like immunosuppression or some of the drug therapies they may be on, um, persons who've received a diagnosis of cancer and who are undergoing some of those therapies tend to be um, uh, much more vulnerable to uh, impacts of the environment. Um, you know, we used to have to give all of the, the folks that we were delivering care to at Johns Hopkins these N95 masks, you know, anytime they walked outside of a hospital so that the air they were breathing in, you know, wouldn't contain uh, the particulates that might exacerbate certain conditions or, or give them, you know, an infection that, um, you know, would be hard to treat. And so, so persons um, at risk for or who've, who've been diagnosed with cancer and who are in some of these particular spaces of being either immunosuppressed or um, having certain um, frailties um, in, in terms of system balance because of the, the drugs they're on or, the, or their condition, um, they're, they're at risk and um, of, of some of the, the, the impacts we're already seeing associated with environmental degradation and climate change, uh, whether that's worsening air quality, whether that's um, having their treatment disrupted because of wildfires or hurricanes and floods and other quote, natural disasters, um, which we saw in Puerto Rico, um, parts of the island didn't even get power back for about a year following the hurricane. And uh, one of the case studies we prepared in this paper we wrote um, titled Climate change should be part of every nursing research agenda, <laughs> which, which you, you helped co-author, uh, was from our colleague, Dr. Pereira, in Puerto Rico, talking about, you know, here's what happened, because um, Dr. Pereira works at the new Comprehensive Cancer Center in San Juan. This is what happened, you know, when the hurricane struck San Juan. This is, you know, all the folks whose treatment was suddenly cut off. These are the folks who couldn't get in from... Um, more geographically isolated parts of the island because the roads were blocked or, you know, it simply wasn't possible to get transportation. You know, there were immediate dire impacts of those storms on cancer survivors in Puerto Rico and in many other places, including the southern United States and elsewhere. And I'm sure you're seeing that now unfolding, too, in Australia with these wildfires and in Northern California with the wildfires there. So this is already happening. But when we looked back at the cancer nursing literature in the, the flagship journals of ONS, over since the, the beginning the, of their publication, we could only find two articles in all of those journals that even mentioned climate change or, or planetary health. And both of them were um, commentaries. Uh, they weren't necessarily research studies. And so um, we decided, you know, that was something we really needed, uh, not just for ONS, I think for every nursing organization, really every organization right now needs to be thinking about this because it's such a structural thing, is, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely relevant to oncology nursing. And we were able to go back through the research agenda and for every single strategic priority on that research agenda, we created a table with the priority and then a, a column where and, and you contributed to this, Dr. Shank, um, where we describe how climate change could be a very specific, you know, measurable part of that strategic priority, no matter how esoteric. And, um, and the point was uh, really just to, to bring this to the forefront of people's consciousness, um, because also the, the care uh, strategies for cancer nursing are incredibly resource intensive for reason. Um, you know, we're trying to support folks um, to, to be well, but 
Um, but but the, there are so many intersections between our, our nursing practice and our um, potential opportunities, um, both to engage in more sustainable practice as well as to be um, amplifiers and advocates for the communities we serve and the planet in terms of, you know, really driving this collective will at the levels it needs to be at, you know, those highest national and international levels for policy change that will um, help us mitigate um, what's happening with the climate. Yeah, so well said again, and uh, so important. And I, I, um, I think that it almost has to be called out because as you say, the structural barriers are so present. It's difficult. It's difficult for scientists, I think, almost philosophically or at least intellectually to shift from a narrow area of study to remembering how does this relate to our, our, our global picture that many of us don't even conceptualize that well, many humans, it seems like. And so to get to insist that that is remembered in our study and in our writing and in our um, teaching uh, is is going to force us somehow to to include it. You know, something like like we might need to do for the social determinants of health or for even um, racial justice. We we have needed to apply those rules externally because they have not come up uh, internally in all cases or not come up naturally in all cases. So I think that's that's right. We need to impose those expectations on our work now because this is, you know, the one of the most impactful uh, issues, not issue, uh, realities that uh, is influencing everything around us. Yeah. And, and I think as more and more, unfortunately, as more of these crises are directly felt by individuals in the leadership of some of these organizations will we'll see more of those conversations being had, but we can't wait um, for everyone to have like a, a sort of wake up call mm -hmm. to, to, to be taking action. And so that's why I appreciate to the work of um, the Alliance of, of Nurses for a Healthy Environment and, and um, others you know, the American Public Health Association's nursing wing, um, the Emergency Nurses Association, other nursing groups that have already um, taken some responsibility for leading in that space and for generating, you know, the, the open source materials, the textbooks and curriculums, the, the action plans and, and practice changes that we can all be using right now um, mm -hmm. to be changing, you know, that picture. Well, let me just ask you a question about your your teaching and in uh, and your leadership in the PhD program. I guess if if that's where you spend more of your time in uh, academically, um, are how are you able to bring uh, some of these concerns in at least from the environmental side? And also, do you have students coming who who really want to study and work in these areas? Sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm the brand new uh, director of the P. PhD program. So I haven't actually been in this role very long. Um, but uh, I think where I'll start is is actually with our pre-licensure students, with our, our undergrads. This past fall, I taught a course uh, to the the second degree, the, the sort of accelerated uh, nursing pre-licensure students um, that we have here at UMass Amherst. So there were about 85 of them. And it was a course about nursing research and innovation, but the way the course 
course was set up, um, you know, we're, we're fairly flexible in the areas we can cover because in my mind, every area of nursing can involve those topics. Uh, so one of the exercises we did pretty early in the semester was, um, you know, in talking about design thinking, which is a sort of a buzzword in the nursing innovation space right now. Um, and something I think nurses have been doing forever, which is, you know, centering the folks that you're designing for and, and trying to think about what's going to actually work for them in that context. Uh, but one of the tools for design thinking is this thing called designing empathy maps, which is where you just brainstorm um, both as an individual and then possibly with a group around, you know, all the ways people think, feel, act, and, and talk about issues um, that might be a center of focus for design. So we picked the issue climate change. And uh, we decided, you know, none of us can speak for anyone but ourselves. So the students in the class were challenged to focus their empathy map creation on just their own individual perspectives as a, a nurse or nursing student around climate change. What do they think about it? What do they do about it? What do they say about it? Um, how do they feel? And so that each student, you know, wrote on um, like little little post-it notes and such, you know, some of these these thoughts and feelings, and then they shared them in small groups, and they started to come up with sort of themes and collections of ideas. And it was interesting to watch that work unfold because you could tell once they started um, writing and, and talking about it that this this is a topic on the mind of a lot of these students. Um, who tend to be students who are at um, a, a wide variety of points in their professional careers. Some are coming straight out of another college program. Some are returning from active duty um, into the civilian workforce. And some of them are um, you know, already at the end of another entire career in some other space. And now they're entering nursing. So they come from all different walks of life. Um, but they're very motivated and engaged on this topic. The other thing I took away from that class was many of the themes on these, these ultimately these posters they created in small groups um, reflected a certain level of real worry and, um, and even despair around, you know, what are we going to do about this? And um, for myself, I, I had never formally, to be completely honest, I'd never formally incorporated um, climate change into my teaching practice at the undergraduate level. Um, so I was still familiarizing myself with the resources that were available. And this was right about the time that I actually met you yeah. <laughs> and other folks down in DC um, and, and became aware of just um, some of the wonderful resources that have been created. So when I came back to the class after, you know, I'd seen the, the, um, sort of raw feelings around this um, and we did do some brainstorming exercises around okay what can you do like even you know at the individual level what are some of the things you can be doing but also at the policy level what should nursing be doing to advocate for planetary health um, I was able to bring them back a copy of the, um, the issue of the journal of creative nursing uh, that many of you all had, um, had written in about you know nursing and climate change and what nurses could be doing about this and to share the open access a uh, textbook, the digital resources that the Alliance for uh, Nurses for a Healthy Environment had created. And the students were so appreciative of this uh, because it wasn't something that was necessarily being provided um, anywhere else, at least not yet. And, um, and, and now that I, I've had that, that learning experience, it was truly 
a wake up call for me. Um, I realized that this is something I need to be doing in, you know, every course I teach and including in our PhD program where we do talk about some of these um, truly global issues. Um, but I, I think there's probably an opportunity in, in every dissertation um, for uh, incorporating this, this consideration into the, the research as well. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Again, to yeah, kind of force the question. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking a lot as we even, um, you know, we're now in the, the time of, um, you know, admitting the next class of students to come in for next year. Um, you know, we have so many resources across, you know, a huge public research university like this that are focused directly um, on, on, on climate change and on, on the technology and uh, research and, and networks you need to, to better understand how to have an impact. And um, UMass Amherst actually has climate justice in its mission statement for the university. Uh, some of the researchers here on campus have actually endured quite a lot of um, harassment from certain uh, political spaces because of that. You know, there are constantly FOIA requests, the Freedom of Information Act requests for the emails of some of the faculty on campus from folks who, who disagree with these efforts to address climate justice and who are really just asking for this information so they can further harass our professors. But um, anyway, so we're already in a space where there is so much uh, here that could be leveraged to make an even greater impact in, in um, sort of the advocacy space and in the science. And I, I think part of my job over the coming year is going to be um, to try to make even more direct connections like the collaboration we currently have with our chemical engineering colleagues um, between our students who are also interested in these issues and between some of these non-nursing disciplines that have been doing work in this space for a while as well and trying to better understand how we can all leverage our expertise and that collaboration to have an even greater impact. That sounds awesome. Well, thank you for explaining that. That's a, that's a, um, uh, it gives me hope and uh, enthusiasm to see what you develop there. And, and also, you know, the many schools across the country are, are grabbing hold of this more uh, with, with more intention and, and a little bit more substance. And I'm uh, relieved by that. Well, yeah, I think um, you know something we say in oncology nursing is there's always hope. It's just the nature of that hope may evolve over time. Um, so I remain hopeful. Yeah, good. Well, Rachel, I have taken a lot of your time today, and I, it's been a, just a fabulous conversation. Um, I could I could talk for hours with you. I'd love to listen to you more and and explore your thinking. But for today, is there anything else you'd like to add to our conversation? Oh my, well, this has been a real pleasure. I so appreciate an opportunity to, to talk more with you and to um, share with the listeners of your podcast. I hope that if there are things we've talked about that are interesting to them, um, if they're interested, frankly, if they're interested in doctoral study, but really um, in any of the work that's going on here, um, I'd be happy to talk more. I'm on Twitter at UMass Walker. And um, my email is r.walker at umass.edu. Um, so please feel free to reach out. And um, I, I really do think um, having been in, in a couple of spaces over the last 
year and a half um, with with persons who, who, at least on the world stage, are called you know the experts. Whether those are experts in AI or technology or public policy or a myriad other spaces. Um, and one of the things that has really been validated for me is the fact that you don't need to have a PhD or a fancy degree or um, any particular background um, to add something to the work that's vitally important. And I think for nurses, our lived experiences of working with people, supporting health in, in the hospital and at home, we know, we, we may not have all the answers and, and maybe we shouldn't have all the answers, but we have questions that can fundamentally change the course of strategic planning and research and innovation and policy and other work that is needed to um, support planetary health and support you know, people right where they are. And so um, I, I think no one should underestimate the value that their voice brings to a space. Uh, no matter what your particular educational or, or clinical background might be. Um, so thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you for sharing your voice on this topic and, and all of the fabulous work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Rachel Walker for this fascinating conversation. It was heartening for me to hear about Rachel's experience with innovation and her refreshing approach to technology as a tool and using it, we need to be committed to hearing from people in their lived experience. Also, it was moving to hear about the experiences her students are reporting regarding climate change. It calls us as a profession to not only prepare in terms of knowledge about climate change and health, but also in terms of the emotional impacts and how we can help our own profession as they reckon with this challenge. Thank you again to Rachel and thank you all for listening today. This and other episodes of the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast can be found at envirn.org. And please leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time.